Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor and enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Neil Almond. Hello. And Elliot Morgan. Hello. And together, we're going to explore pupil progress meetings, and in particular, how, if at all, we can get the most from them. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? This week, I took a little return to a book that I read a year or so back called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth. It's a fascinating little exploration of the tools of rhetoric and how they've been employed in uh, English literature and beyond. It's fascinating, really easy read for anyone interested in language. And what I loved about it is after reading it, I started to spot little patterns um, among some of the most captivating lines in English literature, but also in television, films, etc. I felt like it gave me a a nice little rubric against which to understand language a little bit better in how it's employed. So yeah, love that. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I've gone back to an article, which I probably read about maybe two years ago, but I think someone brought it back to my attention. So I thought, yeah, that's one to look at. And that's the early mass trajectory, low income children's mathematics knowledge from ages four to 11. And that's by uh, Bethany Rittle Johnson, uh, Kerry uh, Hoffer, Emily Fife, and uh, Dale Farron, an American study that just kind of looks at mathematical knowledge from um, the ages of four to 11, just particularly highlights that importance of um, patterning and that idea of spatial reasoning and this idea that these are, in an American context, um, pretty good um, predictors for fifth grade, which would be our year six anyway. Um, so what that was like in first grade it tends to be a good predictor for fifth grade mathematics, depending on what their um, spatial reasoning and their um, patterning was like. Not necessarily knowledge about shape, but can they recognize patterns, etc. cetera. Uh, given that in the new uh, early years framework, those early learning goals, uh, shape, space, and measures have been taken uh, out of it being in, in terms of it being a, a goal. Let's not say that it's not important that teachers um, teach that and this is just kind of something that I wanted to have in my back pocket in case uh, I do come across uh, teachers early years providers who do think that we no longer need to think about uh, spatial reasoning and measure and shape and things like that but also to hopefully uh, guide them as to how that might be uh, used most effectively to make sure that um, kids at the start of their mathematical journey get the best uh, best chances. Elliot what are you reading for? So I, I too have um, been revisiting something um, by Grant Wiggins and Jay McTyers about backward design. It, it's sort of a, they, well, they've done a book on instructional design, but it's one part of it. And it's an idea that I think I've discussed with you guys before. The idea of just starting with the end and then working backwards. So thinking about the end goal first, thinking about the evidence required for pupils to show that they've met that goal and then designing your instruction from that. Not exactly a, a radical point of view, um, but I think where especially in primary, we have this over-reliance to, to use ready-made schemes. It's quite, quite an interesting point, um, so definitely worth a read. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? I've been reading the blog by Charlotte McKechnie this week, um, linguisticphonics.wordpress.com. I think she's got about 20, I think, really well-written blogs. And so if you're, if you're interested in that part of early literacy, then I, I would definitely recommend checking it out. 
So then the focus of this episode is pupil progress meetings. I think, especially with people listening in different parts of the world, as always, the most sensible thing to do is explain what we mean by pupil progress meetings. Chris, how would you define them? By the narrowest definition of them that I can imagine, pupil progress meetings are half-termly or sometimes termly meetings between school leaders and teachers uh, to discuss the academic progress of individual students in class. Usually, I'd say, with a focus on core subjects. That said, more commonly, they're a chance for teachers to discuss all aspects of the development of every child in their class, looking at both academic learning and things like uh, personal and social development, with the aim of ensuring that all students are supported in a way that best fits their individual needs. It's really well summed up. And I think if we have, say, for instance, two formatory school and you want all, say, 14 to 16 teachers to talk about the pupils in your class, that's going to take quite a lot of time to cover so that those, those meetings can take place. What should we try and avoid doing to make sure that that time doesn't become wasted time? I think one thing, just from speaking from experience of being on the, the teacher side of it, is being having the leader leadership being too critical and sort of pinpointing error and thinking that it should be sort of more solutions focused. Like you're aware that a child or a group of children are behind or perhaps not making the progress that is expected of them. And I think the narrative should be more focused on to what, what are we going to do now to, to push them on rather than like focusing too heavily on what, um, how they've come to that point where they're not making the expected progress. Yeah, I think because uh, I've recently been on the other side of it where I've been the person who's the other side of the table kind of asking teachers and I, it's something that I know when I was the teacher didn't feel like it was always probably done right so I think the things that we can avoid doing is that first and foremost we need to be really clear that the idea that this one person, this class teacher, is somehow inherently responsible for all the progress that this child makes is a fundamentally flawed idea. The idea that, you know, you could hold anyone really, I think, to account that, uh, depending on what kind of school you're in, you know, this child hasn't made two sub-levels of progress already. You know, there are so many other factors out there that contribute to you know, student attainment far more, actually, than the teacher that's actually in front of them. So I think it's definitely one thing to avoid is any kind of teacher blame or any kind of teacher responsibility. Now, I know that you know some teachers go into this and they can't help but feel responsible because they do teach them uh, all the time. And I understand that, but I think that's why the messaging from SLT needs to be quite clear that this isn't almost like, this is, it's not an interrogation to your teaching ability. It's not an interrogation as to what are you actually doing in that classroom. For me, it was just, and this is saying my context is a one form entry primary school. It was just a good time for me to actually, as a leader, get to know those kids and actually hear about the different issues that teachers were having with certain things. And that meant I could either think about what those intervention groups might look like. Maybe that means we will have some from year three, we'll have some from year four, because we can do something clever with the time because there is this issue across both classes. But it also just helps me understand what the teachers are going through and how I can best support them on that kind of strategic level. 
I like the point you started with there, Neil, in particular, talking about the ways in which pupil progress meetings became and often do become still about accountability and a very specific kind of numerical accountability. I, in, at points in my career, I've been in pupil progress meetings where the discussion has been along the lines of, well, at the start of the year, 73% of your children were at the expected standards, though it wouldn't have been that language at the start of my career, but the equivalent talking about, they were at a 3B, what percentage of them do you think are going to get to a 4C, etc. And it was that fine grain and that silly. And I think that's an unfortunate thing and definitely something to avoid. Linked to that, I've found in the past that certain pupil progress meetings came, came about the attempt to manipulate those statistics. So you would have a child or a group of children that were at a given point in their learning when it came to at a, at a key accountability stage, like key stage one. And you would have a discussion that started with something like, oh, well, you've got a lot of kids in your class that were at a 2C in year two. So that really gives us a lot of work to get them to a level four in year six, yada, yada, yada. And in, in fact, we'd have situations where a kid had surprised us and had achieved particularly well. And the conversation then went, oh, well, they're where they need to be now. Let's start thinking about other children. Well, actually, why? Why are we not still thinking about their progress as much as we're thinking about anyone else's? So, yeah, the manipulation of statistics was something to avoid. I'm sure it's still part of the job for some people. But, yeah, it's something that can really undermine pupil progress meetings. I think another thing I found from pupil progress meetings is coming out with a list of 17 different interventions that we're going to implement because of a sort of tick box attitude. Any child that isn't exactly where we need to be because we've got this false idea of linear progression, well, there's an intervention for that. And so you come away thinking, how on earth am I gonna sort all this stuff out in the, in the autumn term, for example, of the following year, sorry, the, the spring term after the, the autumn term. I think also, dare I say, the frequency of meetings often ends up having quite an impatient attitude towards things like interventions. You know, you've got a half-termly pupil progress meeting, which means has that intervention that you've done for half a term had the impact that you wanted to, it to? And in some cases, that's four and a half weeks. And so, yeah, we can end up having what we think is a good idea in terms of an educational time span being defined itself by pupil progress meetings. I would say the last thing to I would definitely avoid, and as I've seen come about, is a sense of futility or pessimism because of the nature of the conversations where teachers don't want to feel like they're not doing a particularly good job when they are faced with students who are struggling. And so school leaders attempted to say with the odd child, oh, well, we know this child is always going to struggle because of X or Y or Z, just as a way of overcoming the discomfort of that conversation. So I think avoiding that sense of pessimism or futility is a really key thing in pupil progress meetings. Yeah, just a link to one of the points that Krista said, um, talking about manipulating statistics. I don't know if this is as prevalent now as it once was, but I think a lot of schools did um, link pay progression to the statistics or numbers that, that teachers achieved in their class. And it just didn't or doesn't have the intrinsic motivational effect that leaders might think it, it does. Um, and building that sort of external pressure and these high stakes could uh, and and does lead to 
inaccurate measurement of progress. And that's not to say that teachers are dishonest, just that we're all human, none of us are infallible. Um, it, it can happen. I think there's one other thing as well that um, I think is best avoided as well. This is probably more at a senior leadership level rather than at the teacher level, but that's this idea that through these these meetings that you may have, um, this idea that then you can ex kind of extrapolate and make these kind of big inferences about specific groups, whether that be kind of uh, gender or um, you know EAL groups versus non-EAL or PPG versus non-PPG and kind of the idea that you can go, oh, you know, X percentage of um, people premium children are only achieving this. At these kind of numbers we're talking about, of a one form entry, two form entry school, you know, one child can be, you know, anything kind of between, you know, three to seven percentage points. So I would definitely say it's not necessarily worth thinking, oh God, you know, we have a massive problem. Um, from this data with um, people premium children um, just because the, the data just doesn't really because of the, the sample size of your schools you don't really um, get that kind of rich data that actually provides you with that overview that you think you're getting so there's no need to then have a people progress meeting across the whole school think then that there's this whole issue with um, you know writing with the boys and so therefore you spend uh, the next half term, you know, thinking about, well, how can we just, you know, improve, uh, you know, the progress for boys writing, for example, um, it's, it's not needed, it's just make sure that you are still, just make sure that you are still teaching every child as well as possible, and I honestly think the rest will uh, take care of itself. Linked to that, then, I would say that if in doubt, if your teachers are worried about a pupil progress meeting beforehand, then something is awry. That's the number one thing to avoid. Having a situation where teachers are nervous about pupil progress meetings because it'll have an impact on their career development or their salary, or just because they see it as a lot part of a larger accountability measure rather than as an opportunity to support the children in their class. I think just from listening to you guys, there are, there are a few themes that are sort of arising. And I think, I don't know if they're born from sort of mass sort of misinterpretation of different systems, but like I'm thinking about, you know, the responsibility of one teacher, you know, it goes back to the idea that, you know, when, when we have our key stage two statutory assessments, at least 50% of that content is coming from years three, four, and five. And all of the content will have been covered, you know, the whole way through primary. So, it, you know, it's very clear that if we are, breaking the programs of study, so to speak, down into year groups. You know, and I know the national curriculum does that in the core subjects, but if we see the big picture as this is the journey we're going on from start to finish, and we use that sort of approach that we're always talking about, where we are thinking about where are our pupils now, where are they going to next, and then have our ultimate endpoint in mind, I think you, know, you, you almost avoid the responsibility of of one or certainly on the shoulders of one person. And then things like, you know, reducing data, you know, or reducing pupils to data. You know, I remember those days, you know, and the subdivisions of the points, I think you've said before, Chris, just got smaller and smaller and smaller until they took levels away altogether because they were essentially meaningless. You know, you had levels three, four, five, and potentially six. And then you had each of those had three subdivisions. And I think we also had 
subdivisions of those letters. So you'd have an A minus, A plus kind of situation going on. And, uh, you know, I think it, it was, we we're probably quite fortunate as a profession, some of it involved, because I don't think we could have gone any smaller. We would have had this like an atomic level on which we were assessing the pupils. You know, and I think it's the information we have. How summative is it? And how can we use the information we have to best sort of serve our pupils? And I think when we don't understand data sets, you know, like you say, I, I, I find that grouping on such a small scale is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes. But if you have a massive scale, like a whole nation and their set of results, you possibly could make some reliable inferences. But I think it's when we don't understand the use of data and when we don't see the curriculum in its intended way, I think that's where things like this come from. And it, it's almost trying to avoid those generalizations that allow us to get the most. Just on that on that point, Kieran, I think it was um, Amanda Spielman, actually, I think four or five years ago, was giving a speech when just as the DFE data workload group had reported back, and paraphrasing here massively, but I think she basically said, unless you're doing that kind of number crunching in terms of grouping, either at the you know minimum, the local authority level, or, you know, and even then you still need to be careful. It's just not worth the time or effort that you're actually, you know, putting in to do that. So it, it's a win-win for everyone. Senior leaders can save some time from actually having to do all that number crunching and then thinking about what they're going to have to do about it. And then that saves teacher time because they then don't have to implement any kind of weird and wonderful interventions or kind of whole class and a uh, whole class kind of teaching uh, methods that the SLT kind of put in as a result of that data crunching. So definitely one to uh, avoid. And I'm sure James Pembroke's book, Data Busting for Primary Schools, will put to bed hopefully quite a lot of these myths. And it's definitely one that um, everyone should should be on everyone's to buy list for 2022 for sure. Yeah, and I probably should have preceded my sort of response by saying that no one's ever trained for this kind of data analysis and the system sort of pushed us in this direction you know and, and certainly it was already being pushed in that direction when i came in and i think if we go to your ideal scenario neil where eventually key stage one sats go then i think you allow yourself to to see that seven year that seven year gap and think right, okay what can we achieve in this seven year period but you know because i'm hearing more positive stories about people progress meetings I think that's a necessary step for us to get anywhere, you know, close to our ideal, which I think leads on quite nicely then to our ideal situation. You know, what should we do to try and get the most from our pupil progress meetings? In order to get the, the most out of pupil progress meetings, I, I think it's sort of, you need to think about both before and afterwards. And for me, not so much what actually occurs in the meeting itself. So in terms of before, like questioning what assessments do we use? Are we relying solely on teacher assessment? Because that's obviously open to bias. Um, are we using summative assessments where possible and then sort of doing a comparative judgment of the two to get a better um, pit picture um, or understanding of pupils and where they're at? I too was on the other side uh, for the first time this year as a leader conducting these pupil progress meetings. And something that some of the teachers were doing coming in, I thought was really, really um, a really good 
piece of practice that I'm going to now ask them to do every time coming, uh, going forward is they were coming in and they'd already done their own analysis of the data. They were coming in and going, right, you can see this and that and blah, blah, blah. I found that so useful, saved a lot of time and also just gave me a much better um, picture of their, their understanding of their assessment. The other side of it, I would say, would be what you do afterwards. So how do you react? I think the monitoring afterwards is more important than the meeting itself. So those sort of regular informal check-ins with teachers um, see if those interventions you put in place are working. Keeping in mind, obviously, what Chris said earlier about you need to give interventions time to, to bed in. You can't just expect something to, to give you huge progress after four weeks. Um, but that will save you a lot of time when the next pupil progress meetings come around. If there are sort of broader issues that you identify in school-wide, then react with some CPD or something to tackle them. If you identify that like arithmetic is an issue across three or four year groups, then react accordingly with some CPD to, to tackle that issue. So yeah, for me, it'd be what you do before and afterwards that, that, help you, that helps you to get the most out of the meetings rather than the actual meeting itself. I think you touched on this morgues as well, but I just wanna kind of enunciate it again focus as much as possible on how things can be better for the students rather than what led to the current situation. It can be tempting in pupil progress meetings to begin feeling like you need to justify yourself or to rationalize your choices and start saying, well, this little group of kids, I don't think that this happened in, you know, um, years gone by. And regardless of whether that's the case, that's very rarely going to actually contribute to making the situation better. So focusing on what comes next, what can be put in place rather than what may or may not have contributed that to that situation is, yeah, a really positive thing to do because time is often short in these meetings. As I think you mentioned earlier, Kieran, they're often brief. There's a lot of things to discuss. And so there's another time to be thinking about wider issues that might have led to certain situations in a given class. Thinking of these as opportunities to explore what more experienced colleagues have to offer in a given situation. In, in most circumstances, what you have is a slightly less experienced teacher, not always, sometimes the teacher is the most experienced person in the room, but often you have a less experienced teacher talk, who has excellent knowledge of a group of students talking about this group of students to some senior leaders who perhaps have a bit more teaching experience, but don't have an intimate knowledge of these children and their learning. And finding a way to learn from the advice that's given by these more experienced colleagues is, a, is why you're there. It's why the meeting is happening. But with that in mind, we also have to think about how these meetings are going to differ. If you're a senior leader conducting these meetings, they are going to differ when you are talking with, say, an NQT than they are with someone who's got 20 years teaching experience because with an NQT who says, oh, I've got this issue in the classroom or I'd like to address this, they might need a, need a lot more of kind of directive support and advice. Whereas with a really experienced teacher with a great deal of expertise, it might be the case that, or it's likely to be the case that any suggestions you make are things that they've already tried or that they just want a little bit of clarification on, etc. So be ready to think of these meetings as slightly different beasts depending on the experience and expertise of um, the teacher and the senior leaders involved. Slightly mundane thing, try not to squeeze them all into one day. I just remember having pupil progress meetings 
where I was taught in year six. And so we were the last one of the day and we'd be squeezed in at 4.30. And you could see that the leaders who were conducting these meetings had done this for the whole day. And by 4.30, they were just done in. And the, the extent to which they were then fully ready to discuss the minutiae of children's academic attainment and social and emotional development just wasn't there to the same extent as I'm sure it was earlier in the day. Where I've seen these done particularly well, and I know this isn't always possible, but where I've seen them done well, they've been organized so that the leaders in question don't necessarily have to have all of these meetings kind of crushed into one day. So yeah, those are some things I would look out for. Oh, one last thing. I know that I was very defensive as a teacher when I went into these meetings. I felt like I was being judged and to an extent, these meetings became more productive, not through anything that any major changes that I experienced from the leaders in question, but from a slight change in my attitude towards them when I kept, became a little bit more confident in what I was doing. So just on an attitude level, trying not to feel too defensive um, when your class is talked about is something to try and do to make sure that these meetings are as productive as possible. Not too much more to add. I think all the main points have been covered. I just think what I have done and what I think teachers uh, found quite useful when we did um, our uh, pupil progress meetings, that they were about a week or two um, just after we had one of our data drops. We only do three a year, so only three data drops. They were about a week, week and a half, a week to two weeks kind of after that. So um, they had the most up-to-date um data that the system was telling us but with that as well we also um, provided them with um, attendance data as well because that's something that doesn't tend to be given out and but it's really kind of easy to see why little Martha isn't making expected progress and it, it changes that narrative from well you know what have you been doing to well yeah do you know what actually she's not been in school for a third of the term so far and then that turns it to this more kind of whole school level what can we you know on these whole spot these wider whole school systems that are in place that perhaps the class teacher doesn't see that can be put in place or that can be you know be checked on to make sure that that side of things working so you know is our attendance officer picking this stuff up are they then chasing that up and making sure that you know there are legitimate re especially you know given the past 18 months that we've had you know are there legitimate reasons why poor little Martha, you know, has missed a third of the term and then what we can kind of do from there. So I think doing, doing these properly, I think actually means that there's more work for leaders to do afterwards than there perhaps is for the individual teacher. It's not to say that the teacher kind of goes and thinks, yeah, that's all done and dusted. Certainly when we discussed some of the intricacies as to why we thought, why they said that children weren't making progress, you know, I was able to say, well, you know, try A, B, C in a very, you know, non, not I'm going to come and see you in a week's time and I'm expecting to see it, but, you know, just try it out. But it certainly means that senior leaders should be taking the temperature. If three or four of your teachers are saying, yeah, well, you know, behavior has been a bit rocky. That's a, a warning system for you to go, oh, okay, maybe we need to go and have a look at whole school behavior again and sort that out before we necessarily not that I think anyone should, but before some leaders may necessarily pin like the whole progress or lack of progress on uh, one individual teacher. So I think yours sort of feeds into my ideal and I, I do appreciate I'm speaking in ideals, but my sort of perfect model 
places a lot more work on the shoulders of those people who are in, in leadership, you know, whether that be those responsible for attendance, you know, those responsible for, you know, perhaps the Senko, you know, with an, with an oversight of interventions that are taking place in school or, you know, pupils with profound um, needs or, you know, challenges. And I think you almost end up with, in my ideal world, one meeting, say May or June, because I find any meetings that happen in July, you know, you're getting diminishing returns because of, you know, the proximity towards the end of the academic year, you know, people's, people's minds naturally shift towards September. So I would almost have it that if, for instance, you've got a, a system like, you know, you guys had step needle and you have your same day intervention and, you know, your person is responsible for that and has general oversight might be thinking, well, which of these pupils are coming back regularly, you know, and or maybe they're talking to the teachers about who is attending these, you know, perhaps more than, you know, the other pupils, because I know that Matt said in the past before that sometimes a very specific intervention, you know, I think it was the Engelman intervention in Matt's, that he, for instance, that he would use, along with the attendance, and then those people having conversations, maybe in an SLT meeting, about things that can happen on a school-wide level. And so that removes the need to have a meeting after 13 weeks and then after 20-ish weeks. And instead, you could have one close to the end of the year, you know, maybe 30 weeks into the year. And you almost have the people who have the expertise sitting down and having a conversation about the classes. So, for instance, if an NQT did come in, you know, the, the Sanka will have a, a broad experience, you'd hope, of pupils and various different challenges so they may have seen the behaviors or the experiences that the newly qualified teacher is expressing and then they can say okay well this might be the solution in that situation you know obviously if one of us were to sit in the meeting we would have seen this before we could say well i think this group of pupils needs this but i think if you structure sort of the way leadership behaves across the year then you take that pressure from teachers does that make sense that makes all sorts of sense. Um, I would, along alongside that, add the idea that the meetings I've been in that have been most productive have been the ones where, while they've had a solutions focus, have recognised that neat, immediate answers aren't always available. And sometimes just saying, oh, okay, well, that's something we need to keep an eye on. Let's observe that for a little while. Um, let's come back to that in. It feels like kicking the can down the road, but there are also circumstances where you just don't know enough about the pupil or about that situation or about that circumstance. And so while there can be a tendency to want a neat answer, that isn't possible and it perhaps isn't healthy. But just keeping track of those things as well, not letting them go, just saying, okay, that's on the agenda for next time. Let's keep an eye on that over the next few months. It doesn't have to wait to the pupil progress meet. The next pupil progress meeting, if you need to speak to me about that, just come and do it. So actually, one of the things perhaps coming from that is to not see the pupil progress meetings as the opportunity to talk about your students with senior leaders. I think it goes without saying, perhaps, but I'm going to say it anyway, that in a really good school environment, you should feel that if you ever have a concern or something you want to share or something you just want some advice on, that you wouldn't think twice about approaching the senior leaders in your school, even if in the back of your mind, you're thinking it, 
you don't feel like it will reflect well on you as a teacher because that's often one of the worries we have we'll go I don't want to say that I this child is struggling with mathematics because well what does that say about me as a maths teacher and and getting past that and having a culture in school that helps teachers to get past that is um, something that's really valuable and supports really effective pupil progress meetings yeah it's funny you should say that because common issues with pupils development in literacy are often pretty frequent behaviors in younger children you know for instance if we think about the reversal of digits and letters they're pretty frequent up until about seven years of age and so even if you notice them when a pupil is four five or six there's really not much you can do in that situation and i think even an educational psychologist or whoever's brought in to do any sort of assessment will say well this is developmental this happens to almost if not every child you know so like you said taking that tempered approach making a note of it and then seeing how things play out i think it is definitely the wise approach because if we over intervene too early i think you're at risk of taking the pupils independence from them you know because there, there are lots of stages and i'm thinking about maths in particular a lot of the stages if you go to learning trajectories they're incomplete sort of pieces of knowledge you know there'll be one about you know when pupils are counting five objects one of the stages that they need to go through is incorrectly counting those objects and assigning the you know the correct number names but to the different values you know so i saw one video the other day and there were three objects and the pupils started going four five six and so they you know clemens and sarama saw that as a necessary point in development and if we pick that up and say this child has something wrong with them you know this child needs intervention well actually we're deploying our resources in in the wrong direction you know and i think it's about having that mindset like you say chris about let's see how this pans out because not all the time will it be an indicator that something is going wrong. So Chris, we set out looking for eight ways to help us get the most from pupil progress meetings. How did we do? We said that it was essential to question and fully understand what has contributed to any data being discussed. We said that we needed to informally monitor what comes from pupil progress meetings and not to see these as a standalone meeting, react, react accordingly to these meetings effectively and see them as an opportunity to share and redistribute responsibility and learn from more experienced colleagues. We need to recognise that any attainment data that is discussed is blurry effectively and that learning is always non-linear and so not to say look for a linear trajectory of learning for students. We needed to recognise as school leaders that the nature of the meeting will have to be flexible depending on the level of experience and expertise of the teacher in question. Obviously, a less experienced teacher will need more support than one that perhaps has greater expertise. We said that it was important to try not to feel judged and thus be defensive in these meetings and equally that leaders needed to not give any reasons for teachers to feel defensive. And the best way to achieve this is to see everything that comes from these as opportunities for instruction rather than 
deficiencies in students or teachers, consider a wide array of factors such as attendance and potential peer group issues. We have to see it not just as a single opportunity for this sort of conversation, but actually that the whole school year is an opportunity for these sorts of conversations where appropriate and where time allows with senior leaders. And finally, we said that it was important to bear in mind that there won't always be neat, immediate answers from these pupil progress meetings, and that sometimes we need a little patience and just need to take the opportunity to observe and keep track of something ready for a later meeting or a later conversation, rather than trying to feel like we have to solve everything straight away. Excellent. Another, another fascinating chat. I think all that's left to say is that then, um, thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>